Hello, fellow grievers. You have found the leftover pieces, Suicide Lost Conversations. And I am Melissa, your podcast host. Join me for real conversations and candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of a loved one to suicide. I talk with other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and sometimes I offer my own thoughts. Every week we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and hopefully offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me, and together let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, fellow grievers. Today you've reached Season 2, Episode 16 of the Leftover Pieces podcast, Suicide Lost Conversations. Today, I have a conversation with Suzanne. Suzanne lost her 17-year-old son, Samuel, to suicide on September 2nd of 2020. And if suicide loss of your child isn't enough, Unfortunately, Suzanne also lost her mother and father in close succession to each other the first part of this year. So to say that she's had a lot of grief on her plate would be an understatement. Suzanne is very honest with me when she shares details about Samuel's life in the four years leading up to his death. Details that actually shed light on the title of this episode, the fact that grief was not something new to her. Suzanne feels like some of what she went through in the four years leading up to suicide prepared her for it in some ominous way. And that's not to say that it has softened the grief, but in some ways it was like she was grieving a little bit before he actually died. She brings to light that oftentimes When loved ones struggle alongside their family or friend that has mental illness and the issues that can go along with that, that that struggle and journey is extremely difficult in itself. And in Samuel's case, he was indeed openly suicidal through a lot of this time. Suzanne goes on to talk about what her journey's been like in the following year, some of where she's headed. And we also talk about the fact that she started a coaching business called Coaching After Loss, where she is now determined to make a difference in Samuel's name and support others who have traveled this very lonely path. Suzanne set up Coaching After Loss to create a safe space for those who have suffered loss and to explore their unique challenges, rebuild their confidence, and find meaning and purpose in order to move forward. Suzanne's former experience is that she is an NHS nurse in the UK and qualified coach who also combines her passion for caring with her coaching experience. This episode is about one mom's very honest and heartbreaking journey through four years with her son that were fraught with mental illness, among other struggles the loss of her son to suicide at only 17, and the hope that she now sees for the future. I'm glad you've joined us today. 
Hi, Suzanne. Welcome. I'm really glad to have you today for this conversation. It's good morning here in the United States and good afternoon for where you are in the UK. Welcome. Hi, Melissa. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm in London in the UK. Awesome. I hope to go someday. I've acquired a lot of friends in the UK in the last couple of years since doing the podcast and during the pandemic and the UK and Australia are at the top of my list right now. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll have a, a gathering one day in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> I am really honored to have you on the podcast today. And I'm going to start by asking you to share with everyone your lost story, if you would. Okay, I'm Suzanne. I'm a mum to four children and uh, I lost my youngest child, my son Samuel, just over a year ago, 2nd of September, and he was just 17. My story is quite difficult because although his death came as a shock, I'd actually had a, a very traumatic time with Samuel since his, his teenage years, so probably about four years prior to that. And although I've very much connected with the grief and the suicide bereavement community, what I often find quite difficult is that I did know that suicide could have happened. Samuel talked about suicide most days. He he had lots of threats that um, it, it might happen. But in some ways, I got used to that. And I suppose I, I didn't think it, it, it would happen to us because it was there, you know, for, for quite a number of years. Samuel, when he was, he was a very vibrant child, he was the youngest, he was adored, he was this, this beautiful baby and this kind of brought so much joy to us. And he was also a very headstrong character. He knew what he wanted, he was articulate, he was super smart. And, and I had really high hopes for him. I thought that he was going to excel in life because academically he was incredibly able. He was in the A-teams for all his sports and he loved that whole competitive spirit. And he ended up going off to private school on a scholarship because he passed all the entrance exams. He was quite an intriguing character. So in interviews, people were quite in awe of, of his kind of articulate nature but things started to go quite wrong when he hit puberty. And he'd always been quite an anxious child and he developed these OCD type tendencies where he was constantly washing his hands and, and putting things in tissues and talking about contamination. And then he started to lose weight because he was always quite a chunky boy he was 10 12 when he was born so he was quite a whopper and he'd had that physique and then he just became super skinny and he became attractive to girls which he he absolutely loved and his whole identity was changing before our eyes and then he started to self-harm and he came down one evening I remember it being a Saturday evening it was about 10 o'clock at night and he came down and started chatting to me and I looked and there was just all these cut marks in his arm and it was, what is this? What has happened? What has upset you? And I ended up taking him to the doctor and got a referral to mental health services. But it took three, four months, as it does in the UK, although I think it's even longer now. And I saw a rapid decline. He didn't want to go to school and it became a huge sort of bone of contention. He wouldn't get up in the mornings and all this friction. And unbeknown to me, he'd started to smoke weed to manage his anxiety 
And so he was very much up and down and very volatile. And then he progressed on to taking Xanax, the benzodiazepine that I you know, knew very little of at, at that stage. But then it really took a hold of him. And it became quite a scary place, our house, that he was very unpredictable. You didn't know what Samuel you were going to get each day. He could he could be lovely, but also he could be quite vicious and quite scary. And I reached out for help because I was not coping and he was threatening damage to various family members, to the property. And it was a very lonely place. And it's interesting because when I look back on this period of time, I see this whole loneliness that I withdrew from a lot of my social circle. I couldn't tell people what was happening. Only the people in my you know, immediate family knew wider family didn't know it came with a sense of shame and an awkwardness and my friends children were, were on a different trajectory I took myself off of social media the, the comparisons on Facebook when people were still going to parents evening and my child wasn't even going to school and it became an incredibly hard place to be and I think at that point I went through my whole whole grieving process before Samuel even died that my expectations for him completely changed. He couldn't sustain himself in the school system. He did eventually get a couple of GCSEs, much to his delight, but he had no schooling to get them. He eventually then didn't live with us because it was too dangerous. And I lived a life of being on hyper alert, a very scary time. And I think part of me being on this podcast and talking out is because I'm sure I'm not the only one. It does sometimes feel like that. And even in the aftermath of suicide, I feel my story is quite unique. But I'm sh- it's just there's no support groups for this. There's no mum's net for my child is completely dysfunctional. And how do I cope? And, and I also want to make a difference in his name and have the parent's voice out there because that gets lost. And it's an incredibly scary place to be. So that, that is the first part of my story in, in a nutshell. Wow, it's hard to put all of that in a nutshell, isn't it? Because it's so much to unpack. There's so many pieces to it. And my heart just goes out to you. I'm so sorry for the the loss and the loss that led up to his suicide, because that's the part about your story that hits me a little bit extra somewhere, is that you had so much loss and pain and struggle and isolation prior to Samuel's death. And that's why I think your story is so important because while it's unique to you, there are, I'm, I know there's many parents struggling with very similar situations everywhere that need to not feel the isolation somehow if they can, because like you said, it was so such a lonely place to be. How did you find support? You were suddenly isolated from all the people that had been in your circle prior to Samuel's behavior changing. And so suddenly it's like you were unfortunately in that pre it's what a lot of us feel after suicide loss. We feel very isolated. We feel like the parent groups and support and friends that we had are no longer there. You started to feel that years before because of Samuel's extreme behavior and mental health issues. Correct. Yes. 
and but sometimes I I shut that support down because I, I remember going out with friends and I used to say to them oh I'm not talking about Samuel this evening the look of horror in people's faces you'd stop a complete conversation if you said oh I was in A&E overnight last week or whatever it was so extreme that I put the barriers up and I also found with friends that they wanted to to know the nice bits so mm-hmm. I, I felt that I maybe projected some of the, you know, the better things because I still tried to have a life alongside this. I still tried to go on holiday and do different things and people caught on to that and realised quite soon that it was just too much for people to bear, that they couldn't, nobody could quite identify with what was happening to me. Yeah, I to even hear you say that, if I didn't know you were talking about before his death, I would say that's how I felt after Alex's death, because trying to trying to carry on and pretend like everything's okay, trying to show up in places that I would say, okay, for the sake of the people in the room, I'm not going to talk about Alex's death. I'm not, or I'm not going to even mention Alex because then that, that look comes over people's face or because the look is either that one of horror or pity or those things, or it's that look of, oh, change the subject and you see those looks that come across people's face and to hear that you were having to feel so much of that as a parent who was dealing with a child with this extreme mental health situation and behavioral issues just breaks my heart it's a whole nother mission in itself for you to not only identify as a suicide loss survivor a mother who's lost her child physically lost her child to suicide but you were living this existence that if maybe there had been a better support network for you, it would have been, wouldn't have been as hard and as isolating. And like you said, though, you isolated yourself a little bit, but that's what we do. That's what we do when we protect ourselves from what's so very hard. It's hard enough to live it. And then to try to bring other people into it or up to speed is just more than we can take. Yeah. And and I think uh, because I carried on working and I work in the NHS and work became for a certain extent was my savior. So I could go into work and and park it. Um, But it then became a bit obsessive. So I I might spend the night in A&E with Samuel after he collapsed and we'd had the police and the ambulance service. And I remember one instant when we got home at about 5 a.m., and we went to bed and I got up and I went to work in London and I commuted and, and turned up to work. And I and I look back now and think, what were you doing? How do you ring in and say, oh, I spent all night in A&E with a mental health issue? If, what if, does A&E you know, mean? I don't oh, know. Sorry. No, I... <laughs> yeah. So uh, or we do call it here the emergency department. I could just, So Samuel would, I spent a long time in accident. An emergency. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I spent spent a lot of time there with Samuel he had numerous collapses from drug overdoses or suicidal ideation and I became very adept at compartmentalizing things so that I could could survive and I was in survival mode for such a long time but I did come to the realization that I needed to change my job for a while and I I took redundancy um, from the NHS and and came out of it for nine months because I was burning out. I was very low. And when I was at Overwhelm, 
And it did it did help just to take that time away, just to refocus and invest in myself and trying to get Samuel to a better place. There's a couple of things that come to mind question wise, and we'll just take them in the order that makes sense to you. But some of what I think about when I hear you talk is not only what we've been talking about with everything that led up to it, which maybe that's the way we'll go first. So it's just, it's, it never, ever gets less hard for me to talk about the shock of losing our child to suicide. And I hear all sorts of stories of all sorts of varying degrees of shock and surprise, if you would. Some people had zero idea and others had, we could call it forewarning, like you had someone who had, they had suicidal ideation. It wasn't on one hand a surprise to hear them discuss suicide or not living. But the one common thread is that no matter how much preparation you might have supposedly for that is that it's still at the end of the day, not something you honestly believe could have happened until it does. There's still the shock. The shock is still there that, because I think that from the standpoint of being the person, if you just look at yourself and your child, if you just look at those two people in the relationship, and if you're the one that's not suicidal, and not understanding suicidal ideation inside of our own mind. It is something that even though we hear or realize on an intellectual level could happen because the idea of ending one's life is so complicated in itself. The idea that someone could actually do that. I think that's where the shock comes from. Don't you is that, that at the end of the day, it still doesn't feel like it could actually happen to us that it's not, Because you hear about suicidal ideation with lots of people all the time and you hear about stories where they were suicidal, but now they're not and all the things. So you just go along thinking that this will work itself out. Is that where you feel like you were with the talk about the idea that it was such a shock, but yet you talk about all these years that he was suicidal. Yeah, so he, so he did use the threat of suicide quite freely. When you tried to pin him down to, you need to invest in your future, you need to you know, either get a job or go to college, you'd say, I'm not going to be alive when I'm 16, I'm not going to be alive when I'm 17. And it became a bit of a deflection thing. And then other times I remember like dropping him um, to friends or whatever in the car and he'd get out and say, this will be the last time you'll ever see me. I'm going to kill myself next week. And you take that deep breath and think, I hope it's not. I hope I hope this is just another one of your threats. I also lived in this total kind of sense of fear and foreboding. And I remember I'd scroll through Twitter and if I'd see, or oh, there's an incident or there's a stabbing in the local area, my heart would start pounding. It would be like, where is he? Where is he? And I'd, I'd ring him or find out where he was. And I just thank God on the day he died, I did not look. Because as it was just a normal Wednesday, he'd been having lots of difficulties. The pandemic had pushed him into, you know, a huge decline. He was drinking a lot of alcohol. He was incredibly distressed. The last time I saw him, he was in a very bad way. But he had been in these sorts of situations before and he had a whole professional network around him. And he was supposed to be going into rehab for the first time. So it felt like things could have been controlled and I just had a normal working day and I was making dinner in the evening 
And my partner's stepdaughter walked into the kitchen and said, oh, there's some police here to see you. And to be quite honest, I've had a lot of police come to my door in the past about him. So I just walked out. And I never at any point did I think, why have they come to my house? And I went into into my dining room and they asked me to sit down. And it's just strange how I'm an intelligent, articulate person, but never at any point did I say, why are you here? What are you doing? And then they just quite bluntly said that he died at nine 9.15 that morning. And it was now nearly 7 p.m. And, and it was just quite strange because I didn't cry. I didn't shriek. I just went into weird organisation mode. Who do I need to tell? What do I need to do? And... And very soon after, I, I my phone rang and it was his ex-girlfriend's mum saying, is it true what's happened? My daughter's hysterical. And I said, yes, it is true. And she said, oh, how badly is Samuel injured? And I said, he's died. And it was just weird because it was like, oh, what am I even? The words that I was using were just coming out so freely. And then I, I did go into a bit of a panic mode that it was already on social media and people would know and he's part of this group of lots of young people and I needed to tell my children and one got a son that lives in London but a daughter that lives in Amsterdam another one that lives in Newcastle so I had to do lots of messaging around to check that they were with people that I could then ring them and those phone calls were were the toughest of my life because it was just I've got something awful to tell. And one of my daughters said, it's Samuel, isn't it? And she then said, is he alive? And I had to say, obviously, no. And you hear that scream. And my other daughter was obviously very upset as well. You're just in this awful position where you're having to break this news to people. And we obviously all came together in the next few days, but it was also in the middle of a pandemic. And until you're like in that position where you've got to suddenly make all these decisions about a funeral for a 17 year old boy, it's like, how do you do that? Those kind of things where you've got to choose his clothes, you've got to choose the music. And Samuel was a rapper and he had, he's got lots of music on Spotify. And we did for a minute think, oh, we could use some of that. But he swears a lot and they're really rude. And it was like, oh my God, you you just couldn't do and. Both of my parents were alive at the time and, and getting someone to break the news to them that they'd lost a grandchild. And it's, I don't know, you, you're in this weird bubble for quite a lot of time and you couldn't have people come to your house. My my brother and family came, but friends couldn't come. We were, we'd gone into another one of these lockdowns. So that kind of meant that you didn't have that, that wider circle, which was, yeah, another tough thing to face. Well, that was the second thing that I was thinking about was September 2nd of 2020 is obviously there's some parts of the world that had started to come out of lockdown a little, but for the most part, we were on lockdown all the way through 2020 and probably bears mentioning you don't have to expand on it in any way, but that you did lose both of your parents unexpectedly close together in the early part of this year. So only within six months, both of them after Samuel's passing, which is a lot of compounded complex grief for one to be dealing with, and then to be to be dealing with it in the most isolating global event that's occurred in many of our lifetimes, even our parents' lifetimes. Speak a little bit to that and maybe 
it probably is something that you have to unpack a little bit because you've now gone just over a year since you lost Samuel and a good while. Well, I say good while we both know it feels like yesterday and a long time ago, both at once since you lost both of your parents. So now that you've had a little bit of time to process grief in the pandemic, how do you think it, did it even affect you in the beginning? Because you are so shocked and it just was what it was, or has it affected you more as you've gone on and thought about the isolation and has it affected you in a good or bad? It, it was interesting because when Samuel died, COVID was coming back after the summer in the UK and we were literally watching the news to see the impact that would it would have because they were making decisions around weddings, funerals. So we didn't even know if we could have 30 people there. And eventually it they said we could but then they closed all pubs and we illegally had people back to our house and we we had to make that decision that actually we didn't have many because there wasn't that many at the funeral but it it was those kinds of decisions where your son's taken his life but you're having to work out who can possibly turn up that day I, I didn't have any of my friends at my son's funeral I didn't have any of them at either of my parents either because it was down to the bare bones of grandparents cousins uncles and aunties and he he one of his friends came to the funeral with her mum and I just think that's so sad for his friends as well not to have any kind of rites of passage that this has happened and because Samuel was cremated as well that there isn't like a grave for people to go to people have asked me before and that they're just isn't and like you say I lost both of my parents and my my mum died very suddenly on the 6th of January when we literally just got Christmas out of the way and Christmas was quite you know a difficult time because it was the time where Samuel came home and and he'd be always quite entertaining at Christmas and that didn't happen and and couldn't spend Christmas with with either of my parents because we had extra lockdown over Christmas and my mum died from a varicose vein bleed. So the police turned up at our door again to say there's a sudden death. And it's really unusual, only 30 happen a year. And my mum's death has gone to inquest as well. So it's, oh my God, I've never had, you know, any dealings with inquest and you've suddenly got two happening. And and again, we had to ha- have my mum's funeral. And we, we, we talk about how we came semi-experts at funerals, at doing orders of service and choosing music and flowers and setting up charity pages. And it, it became a bit of a gruesome way to be that, yeah, my, my dad then had a stroke on Mother's Day, which was going to be a sad day anyway, and went into hospital and and I and only one person could visit. And I was that person because I wanted to, I nursing background, I wanted to make sure, and I knew he wasn't going to survive. He was really poorly from the beginning and other people weren't allowed to go to see him because of COVID. But eventually the last 48 hours, other people, you know, could be with him. And in some ways that was, that's given me far more closure because we said goodbye. We played him music. We talked through old stories and, idea that you know that he had a, a good death because his family were around him some had to say goodbye over FaceTime which is you know very sad I think people have talked about it I think in the grief community that actually during the pandemic it was a quiet time you didn't have to mix you could stay at home and I think that's why social media and that grief community really has been an incredible support and I have found since things opened up that actually I 
don't really want to go out that much. I don't want to expose myself to things, to people that kind of vaguely know, or even with some friends, they avoid the topic. And I don't know what's worse, people. I'm a difficult person to be around because I think it's hard to to talk about certain things. But if you don't, then it feels a bit disloyal. And I haven't wanted to to book holidays and things like that because it's just everything just feels a bit too much. So, you know, that there have been some I don't know benefits in 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 a quieter way of being and not feeling like the rest of the world is out enjoying themselves. But I also think that there's a part of me when I see people say, oh, the COVID, the pandemic, 18 months, or we've all had it so hard. And there's a part of me that thinks some of us have had it exceptionally hard, but I'm not the only one that's that's lost somebody during this time. Yeah, I try not to be too resentful about that. I agree. Yeah, there's been this whole, there has been a lot of loss during the pandemic. Obviously, there's been a lot of loss to COVID itself. Because we know the global numbers, the death numbers are are high in some areas, obviously more than others, but there has been, for the sake of this podcast, it's relevant to say there's also been a lot of life lost to suicide during the pandemic. So much so that an, an English friend of mine in the suicide loss world who lost her brother to suicide during the pandemic is writing a book because if you're already struggling with mental health issues and isolation can often be a friend and an enemy to somebody who's struggling with mental illness, the pandemic and the isolation of the pandemic has quite literally been more than many people could take. And so it's added, you know, that layer of complexity, but I find it interesting to step sideways just a bit to hear you talk about, Because I feel like it was different for me because I was more years in. So I didn't do my early grieving during the pandemic. It was, I was five years in August, but having the pandemic time, which at this point we're over a year and a half into this pandemic in many ways, it was, it sounds almost bad to say, but I'm looking at another grieving mom so I can say it. It was almost comforting to have the isolation. In some ways I was more in contact with people. And this is what I found that people that did lose their loved ones found was that maybe they had almost more contact because they could do it in a safe space on the internet. You didn't have to travel to people. You didn't have to put on your pants. You didn't have to, you could be on zoom and be in your pajamas or whatever. And, or you could just be in an online group and you didn't even have to see people or hear them. And then clubhouse came out the first of this last year. And a lot of people flocked to audio groups where they could talk to people. They didn't have to see each other, but they could have contact. And so I've heard some people say in many ways, they had more contact with people, but it's still not the same as getting together with someone and being able to hug them being able to pour their cup of coffee or drink the cup of coffee they poured you, in your case, have biscuits and tea, the things that we all do that feel normal when we get together with people. And normally, when someone loses someone, you are surrounded, at least initially, by humans coming to see you, coming to bring you meals, coming to make sure you're okay. And that was lost during the pandemic to even hear you say one friend was able to attend. Just it it tears at me for you, although I know as a mother, I'll just say having had all of Alex's friends and surround 
I don't remember hardly any of it. So that part probably isn't as impactful as to think about what you said, which was the, what it did to his friends that couldn't attend because the pain is for the people left behind. And so the friends that couldn't get that closure by attending a ceremony, by attending a memorial service. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in, in since the pandemic of people that couldn't have services, still haven't had services or memorials. I've talked to people that still haven't had them because they're waiting. Some of them are starting to happen now, but that's a unique challenge in itself of how do you have a memorial for someone who passed a year ago? Yeah, and I don't think I, I would have one because we did say at the time, Samuel and the people he associated with were, were quite challenging young people. <laughs> and and I think if they had turned up to a service, it, it would have had a very different feel, a feel that he probably would have really liked. But I and don't you, know. You I, all might have been like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it might have just been a, a bit too much at the time. Yeah. And I do keep in contact with a couple of his friends who are very sweet, but but he had quite a different lifestyle. So I haven't got that either. And when I hear other people on, and I go to online suicide bereavement support groups, and they talk about, oh, their child's family, their friends come round and they're all part of it. And I think that won't ever beat me because his friends had similar issues to him, some of them. Yeah, he was and, struggling yeah. so much in those teen years that he was part of the, he was turning up and doing a lot of things that probably weren't wonderful from a mom's standpoint right yes yes he liked to do his own thing so you probably wouldn't want them turning up on your on your doorstep or at a memorial but yeah it is that weird sense of people have talked about there's this boast that I had 400 people at a funeral and we were bursting at the seams and I think oh we had 30 and and there was tape across the seats like it was a crime scene because of the pandemic because of the pandemic of people could Yeah. And that's what I'm saying is to hear that as far as I'm concerned, personally, as the mom in my shock bubble with my children next to me and my best friend on one side. And we did have, I I was told it was well over 500 people, but I was told that I didn't realize I knew it was I physically knew that there was everything packed and there were people standing because there were not enough seats and all those things. And later someone said to me, it was in excess of 500 because they knew the amount of seats and all those things. And I thought to myself, holy cow, but I guess I'm glad for the people that attended for what that did for them. Mom to mom, it would have been, it could have been the 30 people that mattered most in my world for it to have had the same effect for me, because I was so, it was about me and my children and his grandparents. And I'm not saying that his friends didn't matter to me. That's not what I'm saying at all. They did, but I was so in shock still. And I was, and because our brain isn't working right when it's that traumatized, it isn't, I would have remembered if anybody was or wasn't there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it is a surreal time, isn't it? Yeah, so I really think it it is a challenge for the outer circles of people that couldn't attend memorial services during the pandemic 
because they didn't get that closure piece. I think for those of us that were able to be there because it was your child, it probably didn't affect you that much differently one way or the other, as far as, because the loss is the loss is the loss and that's going to affect you as much regardless. So the pomp and circumstance of it all is is what it is. So you spent 30 plus years in the NHS. And I know some of that was in nursing and you had said maybe some other places in the NHS. I know that you now have your coaching practice that coaching after loss That path came on after losing Samuel, or did you start down that path before? And how you coach and who you coach to, how is that affected by your loss? So I've been a coach for about the last five or six years. So I'm a nurse by background, but I've worked in development roles in the NHS. And no, it really did come about after Samuel died and also my parents, because if I take you back to about a couple of months before I lost Samuel, I had, he was heading towards 18. He had a lot of dysfunction in his life. And I knew that, you know, I needed to be there for him. He was going to, you know, be a young adult that needed a lot of support. My dad was also very fragile and he had a lot of collapses and, and I needed to be there to support him. I also had my mum was quite elderly as well and and she lived in quite an isolated area and my life was planned out for a few years that actually Samuel and both of my parents needed that me to be around but within by April this year all three of them had gone and it's shocking though it was like what is my role now because my role with Samuel had t- was all-encompassing. It was my every thought, my every action for that amount of time. And there was this weird sense of odd freedom that what do I do now? And and I, I was, and I know a lot of people when they've had these significant losses, there's this kind of real sense of I've got to find some meaning and purpose and I've got to find it now. And, and I was a bit impatient to what that might actually look like. And it just made me reevaluate all my priorities. At the moment, I commute up to London. It's a long commute. I work in, I work in a useful job. It is quite stressful, the health service. And I thought I need to completely change. This isn't serving me. This is not what I want to do. And over the period of a couple of months, I decided that I really enjoy coaching. I think I'm quite decent at it, get quite good feedback at work. Actually, I could turn that into my own practice. So I I set up coaching after loss. And I was beginning to think, what would this actually look like? And I suddenly thought, it looks like me. It looks like somebody that has been through a really difficult time, but actually wants to, I don't know, just do something different wants to make changes and wants to live a different kind of life because I I put my house up for sale moving from London to Newcastle which is about 300 miles to be nearer one of my daughters I gave my notice in at work beginning of September and, and leave my post in December time and I'm coming out of a relationship so there is it is a huge amount of change and I am mindful that at some point will it will I everything all the action stop and I'll sit down and think oh my god what's just happened but actually it feels right and I, and I know there's other people out there that and, and you alluded to it before that when you go through loss you, your kind of sense of identity 
changes, your meaning, your purpose, and even things like your sense of focus. My memory and focus, you know, is still pretty poor. That your sense of it's a bit like you've had a brain injury that you forget words and you can't quite work things out, and your confidence reduces as well. So actually, your ability to think clearly about actually what might that future look like. And I'm not suggesting everybody makes a dramatic difference, but often you do reprioritize where you want to be. So coaching after loss is my kind of gentle way to support people that want to, to really think through where they are now and where they'd like to be in the future plan for what that might look like and coaching really has a place I think after loss that grief counseling and all those online support things I've done all of those and I and I will continue to but also I got to the point where I want to make change how do I do that and coaching is very future focused actually thinking about things and it comes from you so it's not anyone giving you advice because I think when you've lost somebody people can give you advice but unless you've actually been here that, that just isn't needed I just you need a sounding board you need somebody to really hold you where you are and give you that that sense of support to to make that difference so that's my plan for the future and how I, I set up my coaching practice it sounds like in some ways what you're doing with your coaching practice is very similar to what I'm doing with mine <laughs> so I, I resonate with that a lot and I know that I get people that sometimes ask should I go to a counselor should I see my doctor should I get coaching like all the things you talked about and I tell people to do as much or as little as resonates with them that there's a place sometimes for all of it sometimes the time is right to have maybe psychotherapy and at times it's that we're at different places and that there is no one solution or one answer. It actually takes, at least from my journey, only five years in, this journey as a mother who's lost a child will last until I'm gone. So for my journey, I know in the five years I've been doing this, my needs have changed as I've gone along. And for me, like you said, when I needed coaching, it was because I was in a forward, a ready to move forward place which isn't the same as needing to work out like your feelings of something or the fact that you're not sleeping, which can be a medical issue. Or it's interesting to hear you say it's you've had a brain injury. You have, you have from a medical standpoint, the a traumatic loss is a brain injury of sorts. Now it's not like you physical, it hasn't, you haven't physically struck your head, but the effect that trauma emotional trauma has on our brain, because there's been a lot more research done outwardly and openly available to, to look at on physical trauma, i.e. concussions, accidents that occur, then what that does to the brain. And don't get me wrong, there have been preeminent psychologists and doctors that have studied trauma on the brain before but they were off in their own little space, right? It wasn't some big widely recognized or widely funded area like we've seen happen with brain trauma and injury, physical injury. And it's astounding the amount of similarities that they have found in how our brain functions and responds to physical trauma and emotional trauma of this sort when you've lost a child, especially a child to something as traumatic as suicide loss. And I can only imagine that might apply if it was 
other traumatic losses as well. Murder are different things that could be equally traumatic, but I can only relate from the world that I live in. And so you were responding like someone had a brain injury. We have had a brain injury as a mom. We have had this effect because to hear you say you still struggle with always putting your cognitive thoughts together or the focus or the clarity sometimes isn't there that if you're like me, again, I'm five years in and I'll tell you that it does get a little bit better, but it doesn't get as better as I wish. So I don't know if that's encouraging or not, but I think there's just a part of my brain that's altered enough from the trauma of losing my child and then dealing with the aftermath of suicide loss and everything that goes along with this that there are just some parts of my brain that have changed. And maybe some of that is focus and memories. Maybe some of that will come back. Maybe I can relearn some of those things. And it isn't that I'm now some sort of space case that forgets everything, but I think you probably know as a mom and an intelligent, articulate person that there are just differences in how we are versus how we were before that some of the people in our inner circle probably see, and some of them don't, but because we know ourselves so well, we definitely see the differences. I definitely know that my cognitive ability, my ability to remember certain things accurately, like I've learned to, and I've just had to learn to compensate. I've had to learn to compensate as if I'm recovering from an injury, like I have to put different tools in place to make sure that it compensates for my memory. I have to, uh, tell people that if I've hit my limit for something that I can handle where before I could have taken the weight of the world, I I would try to do that in my early grief. And at times it would not be good for me emotionally and mentally. So I've had to learn to know where my limits are Mm -hmm. and to, and then there's a second piece of that, which is to be okay with that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I do write a lot of lists and, and another thing I get very tired and sometimes the working day or working from home it is exhausting and I know the grief really impacts that especially coming out of the first anniversary I hadn't appreciated how that kind of threw me back into those early days feeling really sluggish and I'm trying to be patient with myself that actually this this all kind of hopefully settle and it has to a certain extent yeah I agree and I'm glad that you we're able to recognize that a little bit, even if it was maybe after it was occurring, if you're like me, sometimes it's after you're in the, the thick of it that you go, oh, I'm in the thick of this right now. I, I experienced some of that more profoundly this year with the fifth year anniversary. In many ways, it took me back to almost the first year. And even doing what I do, talking to people like this all the time, even starting a coaching practice and doing all the things that I should know better, even then, just as a mom who lost her child to suicide, I found myself still surprised this year and saying things out loud. I don't know why this is affecting me so badly, or I don't know why I feel so much why this feels so heavy now. Like I was suddenly doing the things that we don't want other people to do to us, which is say it's been X number of years or X number of months. Shouldn't you be better now? And the reality is one, there's, there's really no better. It's just a matter of living. I always say living successfully alongside this. 
And so I had to cut myself a break and say, one, this is the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of grief, so to speak, that we can go along for quite a while sometimes and be doing by most people's standards in our own fairly well, whatever that means, right? And then for some reason, something will hit us and we will be back in a tougher time, whether that's an hour a day or a month, that's bad. And we just have to learn to honor those times. And I had to take my own advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is about being gentle with yourself, isn't it? That- and saying, I'm not sure why right now is bad, but it, of course, to say I'm not sure why, and I was around, I was at the anniversary time and there were a lot of changes going on in my own life and different things. I I shouldn't have said why I knew, but it was then giving myself permission to just sit in it, to just be there. And I don't mean wallow, but to just sit with it, to sit with it and cut myself a break. And that's what I think so often I try to remember to tell people is when you need to cut yourself a break and take the time, listen to your body. If now is a time you need more rest and take it. And then we also take advantage of the times when we feel I don't want to say more okay, but more energetic, more focused, more whatever. So we just have to ride those. You have to ride the ups and you have to ride the downs a little bit and know that there's hope that that's the difference. I tell people I'm stronger at carrying this. I better know what to expect. So therefore it is easier to know that even when it's really bad, I know that tomorrow it may be better. And if it's not tomorrow, it will be the next day. But I know the hope of this isn't always going to feel as bad as it does, even in the moments now that are bad. Yeah. And I think very much what you said about going with the energy, I've got some energy for, for doing things on a certain day, then we'd ride with that because right. actually, it might ebb and flow during the week or whatever's happening. I have to be careful because it almost sounds like mania, right? When you say, if I have the energy <laughs> and I want to work all night, then I work all night because it's not quite that bad. It's, I don't think it's a manic episode, but there are times that I feel like I'm going along and very focused. And then there's times that the, the weight of it all makes me feel like I can't work more than this many hours a day. And I can't because you just feel tired and sad and the things that that the grief sometimes makes you feel. And you have, I was struck by how very much you have going on, but yet I can resonate in looking back at my own story that I've had some of those same periods over the last several years where I think sometimes in the middle of it, am I going to sit down in a few months or a few weeks and go, how am I okay? But I, so I understand your clarity of purpose. I understand that it all, when it all feels right, that's when you just have to do it. And and I think that you probably hopefully will give yourself a break if you need it. (laughs) Once you get moved to Newcastle and you get near your daughter and you can take a deep breath and settle into the coaching and all the wonderful things that life still does have to take a minute to breathe and reflect will be really important. Don't you think? Yes. And and I look forward to that but also on the on the other side I've got a lot of investigations into Samuel's death Mm. his inquest might go to a jury inquest and there's there's a big safeguard in review so those things are still there and I try not to get fixated on them but but sometimes they throw up new information about what happened the night he died and stuff like that and you think oh could I find out anything more and then you do and that's quite sad yeah and at the same time also wanting to get involved in projects 
that support other young people like Samuel. And to begin with, I didn't quite know where they sat and they've evolved. That I've got involved in in, in some of the work around eight, under 18 suicide arena and some of the, the national work that happens with the government around reporting. And I've put the parental view onto that and have helped with even just some of the images that they use in reporting because they, they write an annual report and some of the recommendations. And yeah, so I'm putting feelers out for being part of groups where you do have the parents voice because I think that will be important alongside the business going forward that that I can put some of my experience to good use so that it isn't quite as a lonely place for other people and I recently had a call with um with the mental health trust that looked after Samuel and and I talked about actually you know what it's like when your child self-harms and you it's such a lonely place and we and what their crisis care looked like and they want me to get involved in some of those projects around things like peer support and um, what information parents actually have at that stage as well so yes I want to put my time to to good use obviously within the bounds of my time because if I'm relocating that will take time and energy but I feel it does give me that extra sense of purpose that that other people won't maybe go along this lonely route and realize that they're not the only. That's what I was going to say is that's the whole purpose of that's a whole lot of the purpose to say it's the whole purpose isn't fair but a whole lot of the purpose of having these conversations on a podcast is to help other people not feel so lonely to help other suicide loss survivors know that it's they're not alone so they're not so lonely but also to see there's hope in every single one of these stories there's hope and the thought that there's still a way towards meaning in life that that and that there's still even bits of happiness that can be sprinkled into our lives i think so often i see and i think you have too on some of the online support groups, especially if you're in the parent space where it's the child loss, it isn't just the loss. You see so many just completely lost souls thinking that their happiness and, and everything is just completely gone. And I know it can feel that way. And I know that is a very real feeling. So I want to try to shed a light on the fact that it doesn't necessarily just show up. Are you, I think I saw that we're, yeah. our internet's a little unstable. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, and, and I, I very much saw that when I first joined the suicide bereavement community that some people, I don't know, they just had this huge sadness about them, that they looked a bit dead behind the eyes. And, they, and it just made me think I need to, to do something quite different. This needs to, you know, be a catalyst for change. And yeah, and good things are starting to happen. And my I'm going to be a grandmother next year and that's exciting stuff like that. And it but it comes with this sadness that Samuel won't get to be an uncle in, in physical form. He, he will the baby will actually have his name as a middle name, which is nice. But so I'm excited to hear you say you're gonna be a grandma because is this your first time? It sounds like it's your first grandchild. Yeah, my eldest daughter that lives in Amsterdam is having a little boy in January, which is uh, which is nice. I think it, it it felt quite poignant when she found out she was having a boy. So, uh, yeah. 
That's exciting. Being a grandma, my dad, when he held my daughter's, my oldest child, she's 27, almost 28 years ago when he held her, he looked at me and he just looked back and forth between her and me and he chuckled. And and I said, why are you laughing, dad? And he just said, paybacks, Melissa. And I was like, (laughs) dad, that's not funny. But he had... He, he, he looked at me one time when she was a toddler. Unfortunately, he died when she was six. He was very young. He was only 49. But he looked at me when she was a toddler and said, I love this. I wish I had done this first. And I said, you get that's not an option. So having become a grandparent three times myself now, it's quite a special it's quite special. <laughs> being a grandma is quite special. Not that being a parent isn't. And that's what I'm, I'm trying not to say because it's not better. My dad joked and it was a joke. It's absolutely not better. It's different. <laughs> it's a little more carefree. We all remember when grandma gave us the piece of cake and, and, yeah. and for dinner. <laughs> my, my grandmother never made me a meal. I always got two puddings, which was quite nice. Exactly. And you get to say, I'm the grandma now. And you get your parent, your kids looking at you saying, wait, I had to clean my plate. And then I sometimes didn't get dessert. I'm like, now I'm grandma and I can do it. Comes with benefits. It does. It really does. I just would like to, as we wrap this up, I'm just so thankful that we had this conversation. I feel like there's a lot of people that listen that will really resonate with your story. And that makes me sad for, for everybody. It also makes me honored that you were willing to share this so that somebody else could take something from your story and maybe have a place of not feeling so alone, but also a place of hope. And I would like to hear you first. I want you to share where people can find you. Where do you exist online on social media, those types of things? Yeah. I'm on Instagram at coaching after loss or my website again is, is coaching after And you can read a bit of story there and I'm adding blogs as I go just to to help others and it's really quite cathartic as well and there's a few coaching resources on there okay awesome I will include that in the show notes the the podcast is like my blog now I love writing I've always liked writing and I feel like I'll probably write a book or 10 someday but for at this point in my life this is like my blog (laughs) (laughs) and so I include my show notes are fairly extensive and they're going to there's a link to my podcast on my website and that's where they can even read the show notes and so I'll be sure to include all of your places and links in the show notes as well as your coaching with your permission as a link on my website under the resources section as well okay thank you yeah. And I'm just so thankful that we had this conversation and I've, I've had this lovely picture of your son up, up on my phone. It was when you started your Instagram and I know we all look at our children and, and we know that they're beautiful, but he's, he's, he's such a happy boy in this picture. And I'm sure that he was, how old was he in this photo that I'm showing you? I think he was about 16 then. Yeah. I was going to say, he looks like a teenager. So I'm assuming that behind this cheeky smile and bright eyes that is there's probably a lot of stuff already going on there about three years worth of stuff going on but I would love to hear you close with a memory of this beautiful young man that is your son so I tell you a memory about his hair cut because you've shown, <laughs> shown a picture of him with his his floppy 
fringe and this boy was obsessed with his hair he was the boy that had a pair of GHD um, straighteners for a Christmas present because he had to have shaved hair all around the sides and then a massive floppy fringe and he'd only ever go to one hairdresser's near where we'd live and and he'd only ever have one guy that was his his barber as well and he used to kick up a real stink if if he didn't have the money to go and and often I used to take him down there and and this guy was called Elliot and if Elliot was there all things were happy and he would yeah he loved mirrors and he loved that picture I think of him (laughs) with his iconic haircut which was very funny but that kind of summed it up he was quite vain he knew he was an attractive boy and but he also knew how to get his way and haircuts were a, a big thing for him. I would say that a lot of that shows in that picture. So I'm, it's, I figured as a mom that if you started your Instagram feed with that photo as your lead in photo, that there was a probably a happy, warm feeling behind it. And it sounds like there was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a big picture of that in my living room. And, uh, yeah, and I would like look up at him and see him smiling down at me. I have a picture of Alex that looks over me while I podcast. I don't know if you can see that. And all the kids around him just looking at him in awe of Samuel's picture reminds me of that. Just the kid that commanded the attention and self-confident and knew who they were and right there in the center. And that's kind of that picture makes me feel the same (laughs) way when I look up at it because I just see his light shining through. So I'm so thankful that you shared Samuel with me and and had this conversation and and shared your story with everyone. I'm so thankful, Suzanne. Oh, thank you, Melissa. It's been lovely speaking to you. It has been lovely. And I will close for now. I'm sure we'll be in touch and I will talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Grievers, it is my hope that from today... You will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. If you connect with what you have heard, please subscribe to get notified of my new episodes every week, and please feel free to share it with others in the suicide loss community. If you are so led, I would also be honored if you would leave a review so that others might find us more easily. You can find me and all ways to connect with me at my Instagram, The Leftover Pieces. I want you to know that I know how very, very hard life is now. It's true that we will never be the same, but we are going to be okay. We will figure this out somehow, together, and we will keep our loved ones with us because there is no getting over or past grief, only learning to live more gracefully alongside it. Only through talk can we keep their memories alive, learn to live again, and bring some awareness so that less will suffer. Join me again next week, and we will keep the talk going. We will sign off today, as always, with the wise words of my Alex's favorite, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.